0: You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.
1: Listener supported
2: WNYC Studios.
3: Blue walls, red ripples, the old electoral metaphors have rarely felt as unsatisfying to me as they do right now. We're working on our upcoming episode, and in it, we're going to basically exit poll listeners. So I want to hear from all of you right now. What exactly motivated your vote? Abortion rights, democracy, something totally different and maybe super personal or local. And whatever motivated you, how are you feeling now as we settle into this new political order? You can just leave a voice note for us right on our website. Go to notesfromamerica.org and you'll see a record button. Just go to that and let it rip. And in the meantime, I'm going to share a conversation I had the morning after Election Day This is a segment I participated in on The Brian Lehrer Show with Charlie Sykes of The Bulwark and Alexis Grinnell from The Nation, and we're all kind of processing aloud, and you know, maybe there's something here that sparks you as you get ready to leave us that voice note. So, take a listen, and thanks for participating.
4: It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. We continue our election coverage now with three guests. Kai Wright, host of WNYC's Notes from America with Kai Wright, heard Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. Alexis Grinnell, columnist for The Nation and co-founder of Pythia Public, a political consultancy which works mostly with Democrats. And Charlie Sykes, founder and editor at large and host of a podcast at The Bulwark a publication largely of anti-Trump conservatives. He's also an MSNBC contributor and author of the book, How the Right Lost Its Mind. Thanks to all of you for coming on. And Alexis and Charlie, welcome back to WNYC.
5: Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Hey, and,
4: and listeners, the phones remain open for any questions or comments on any election result, local or national, 212 wnyc 212 433 nine six nine two or tweet at brian lehrer the employees of twitter may be getting fired but the <laughs> algorithm will still let you through as long as you don't make fun of elon musk i mean there have to be some limits on free speech there why not that all right alexis um we just heard in the newscast from governor and now governor-elect kathy Hokel, a meaningful hole in the glass ce- ceiling Sure. Well, Kathy Hochul is, of course, New York's first female governor. She's also the
5: 46th governor, female governor ever elected in U.S. history, which is significant because we see in the data repeatedly that voters are more comfortable electing women to collaborative bodies like state legislatures, where attributes that are historically and typically coded as female, like communication, working together, um, are sort of seen as prime qualities, and the the uh, the the. Adjectives we identify as leadership or with leadership are historically coded as male. So having a woman in an executive authority position is a huge deal. It's very meaningful, especially um, winning in her own right, although um, her victory, frankly, is uh, a lot closer than it should have been.
4: Do you think it was a lot closer than it should have been to any meaningful degree because of sexism, intentional or unintentional, in the electorate? So gender
5: is absolutely always a factor. Um, It's absurd to pretend it isn't, but it's not the prime factor. And in this case, I think there are other more salient facts that uh, determined the margin here. And the reality is the uh, campaign and the state democratic apparatus was really asleep at the wheel until they woke up at the 11th hour and with the help, frankly, of the Working Families Party, which... um, accounts for about 4% and change of the vote for Hochul, which nearly mirrors her 5% uh, margin, they really deserve a huge amount of credit here for getting up off the mat and delivering for Democrats when the party didn't really do much. So, you know, I think there are other really technical factors that play into her margin. But it would be foolish to ignore gender as a factor. It always is. And I could talk about this all day, Brian.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad we got at least that far for now. Kai, how much (laughs) do you see the Hochul victory as part of the national story today of Americans' reluctance to go full MAGA, as many people have put it? And how much do you see it as its own New York thing revolving around crime and abortion rights and other local issues?
3: I mean, to me, it reads as a New York thing, quite frankly. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, overall, the state, if you to go down the county list, there was a lot of t- trending Republican, even, even where Hochul was winning. She's won by less uh, than Biden won in 2020. Um, and I think a lot of that, you talked about this a lot last hour, just has to do with how— uh, freaked out a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, um, particularly outside of New York City, are uh, about crime right now. Um, but I think the national picture—you know—I mean, it's it is very difficult to draw. Um, I, I would I would be very reluctant to draw any large conclusions <laughs> about the national picture from this, outside of the fact that. Uh, the Republican Party fielded a lot of really bad candidates, and that, uh, both in terms of their political skill and in terms of just how far right they were, um, that turned off Republican voters. Um, and 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 I think to it, I it, I would caution the Democratic Party from from declaring too much about, you know, I saw a quote somewhere from a Biden strategist today that was like, he's definitely running in 2024. Um, You know, this is a, a referendum on Biden. And I just don't know if that's true. If you when you start looking at the races, when you start going really race by race, it a lot of it really looks like really bad Republican candidates that that frankly turned
2: off Republican
4: voters. Charlie, sounds like you wanted to react to exactly that point.
2: No, I, I think that that's a good point. Um, it may not have been a referendum on Joe Biden, but it was certainly a referendum on uh, Donald Trump and what the Republicans are doing. And in terms of just the national picture, I guess I would slightly disagree, because you're looking at uh, Republicans uh, losing the governorship in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Maryland and, and New York with with some very MAGA candidates, uh, you know, very, very low quality I'm candidates. Use my phone. So. So you are you are seeing um, you, you you are seeing um, a, a pushback against that, and I and I think that you know several things happened there. Um, you know, number one, the the, the voters. Um, uh, were i think alarmed at uh, some of the trends that they're seeing uh, i think the, the threats to democracy loomed larger in the minds of many voters than, than perhaps the collective pundit hive mind was uh, was was expecting and and quite frankly uh, in each of those states uh, not not only was trumpism on the ballot uh, but the abortion issue i think that uh, there was an un- underestimation of the enduring impact of the dobbs decision in all of those races
4: Charlie, do we seem headed for Trump election denial kinds of fights now in the Senate races that are still too close to call? I'm thinking particularly of Nevada and Arizona, Mark Kelly against Blake Masters in Arizona, Catherine Cortez Masto against Adam Laxalt in Nevada, both states where the Democrats are the incumbents trying to hold on.
2: Yeah and I think it's it's inevitable particularly in in Arizona where you have Carrie Lake um who is widely expected to win in in one of the worst election deniers in the country if she falls short Uh, I think it's inevitable that they're going to have uh, election denial 2.0. I mean, they've really been practicing this and marinating in conspiracy theories um, and rejection of legitimate votes now for two years. I think it would be naive to think that they wouldn't deploy it in the midterm elections, having deployed it after the 2020 elections.
4: Kai, you have a comment on that?
3: I mean, I think short of it, it. So. Charlie's absolutely right. I mean, Arizona, I think no matter what, if if I mean, even if Carrie Lake wins, I feel like we're probably going to hear uh, a conversation about whether sure. it was a fair election, given that that is so much of her her brand. Uh, Nevada remains uh, who knows but it is trending uh, in the Republican direction there is no question there's going to be a roll- runoff in Georgia I guess I couldn't say can't say anything's no question but it seems like there's going to be a runoff in Georgia and it feels to me like we're headed to yet another place where Georgia is going to um, be the place uh, deciding the outcome uh, of the Senate um, and uh, and I think all three of those states we are I-, I I would batten down the hatches for the kind of conversation we're going to be having over the next couple of months. uh, I think it's going to be really intense.
4: We had some connectivity problems with Alexis there for a minute, but I think we have her back now. Alexis, are you worried as a New York-based person at all about election denial on the part of Lee Zeldin? He hasn't conceded yet.
5: Yeah, that's a real concern, Brian. I mean, the... uh it's a five-point spread that Governor Hochul has. He could decide to have a tantrum about it, but the reality is the numbers are going to work in her favor in the end. She took the city with seventy percent plus, and then the absentee[s], which you know we can be counted, even if they you know come in as late as November fourteenth, are likely going to trend Democratic because that's the pattern we've been seeing. I mean, Republicans have actively been working against voters' rights to to cast their ballot absentee, and typically they've tried to Democrat. So it doesn't seem to be much point in throwing that fit, but we'll see.
4: Let's take a phone call. Michael in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC. Hi, Michael.
1: Hi, Brian. Um, I wanted to get to, to sort of share a little anecdote about a segment I heard on morning edition uh, this morning and maybe get some feedback from your guests on it. Mm-hmm. So it was a, uh, with a Gen Z activist, like political activist, who was voting in his first election. Um, and how exciting that was. And most of the discussion was about how Gen Z voters are sort of sympathetic with and support their Gen Z peers across the country. So even though, you know, abortion rights are safe in New York, we want to make sure that they're safe, you know, available to people in other places. Then right before it ended, the uh, reporter asked about support for Biden. And that's an issue that's been bothering me, I think, as a 61-year-old Democrat, Uh, who goes, his memories go back as far as the Nixon years. I think Biden may be one of the best presidents of my lifetime. And yet Gen Z voters seem to not really think that for various reasons. And this young man who's a Democratic activist voting in his first election said, look, they've passed He's passed, you know, and he went through the whole list, you know, like I'm not right now I'm blanking, but, you know, climate change and and, and negotiating, you know, uh, Medicare, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, oh, that's exactly right. Thank goodness I'm finally hearing a Gen Z person say that. So I'm interested in what your guests might have to say about whether Gen Z might be having a taking a second look at Biden.
4: Michael, thank you very much. Alexis, I, I'm tempted to go right back to you on that since you work in the political consultancy sector what do you see?
5: Sure. So, I mean, Gen Z is actually one of us fired up um, constituencies. They're people who've been shot at in public schools and form the basis of so much of the activism around the gun control movement. They're not um, sleepy. And actually, they turned out pretty strongly in this election, relatively speaking. It's good to see their political commitment continuing. Um, Of course, you know, the base of the sort of any elections tends to be people 55 and over because they have a history and habit of voting as compared to somebody who's voting in just their first election. That's not surprising, but they're pretty promising, especially since they're also, you know, the real engine behind the climate movement as well. So I actually feel pretty optimistic about Gen Z. They're just young and they don't have as much experience voting, but that doesn't foreclose on what they're going to turn into, which could be a very significant force. Charlie, it, it, the,
4: mm-hmm. I'm sorry, did you want to finish a thought, Alexis? No, that wasn't me. That was it. Charlie, um, the exit poll that I saw last night from the TV networks had voters under 30 at just 10% of the electorate yesterday, which would be less than in 2020. Uh, as far as who they voted for, I'm looking at the um, AP VoteCast, which has the, eight, the 18 to 29-year-olds voting 53% for Democrats. The next – the network exit poll has them much more for Democrats, 63 percent. So what do you make of young voters in this election? You know, I've gotten conflicting
2: numbers about all of that. But, you know, one of the things I've been trying to figure out is uh, why there appears to have been a polling miss in some of these elections. And and I wonder whether there was an overcorrection on the part of the pollsters uh, and the pundit class in, in 2016 – the pollsters underestimated the number of new Republican voters that would come to the polls to vote for donald trump. they did They weren't on the radar screen. I wondered, one of my initial theories was, did they uh, underestimate the number of young voters um who were brought to the polls um to vote in this particular election for democracy, for climate change, uh, on or on the abortion issue? so that that's that that's a question um that I have because clearly, um, you know, the, there there had been this sense that uh, Republican voters were much more motivated, and yet Democratic voters turned out in big numbers, and um, a substantial portion of those have to be have been younger voters who might not have, uh, who who might not have, I, I mean. Let I me mean, back up a bit. Who uh, Pollsters, I, I don't think, have cracked the code of how to poll uh, younger voters necessarily. So and that's a, an open question going forward as we try to figure out what we got right and what we got wrong.
4: Do you think the polls were wrong leading into this election in exactly the opposite of how they were wrong in 2016 when it looked like Hillary Clinton was going to win? This time we kept hearing Republican wave and that didn't happen even if they squeak squeak by with the majority in congress
2: I think that's a possibility i mean now, not all the polls were wrong i mean the polls here in my home state of wisconsin were pretty much exactly were exactly right mm. um on the on the other hand there was this really dramatic shift in the conventional wisdom i used the term hive mind before i mean this is something just in order to remember how um the conventional wisdom had just turned hard that it was going to be this massive red wave and At a certain point, it becomes uh, self-reinforcing, and it's just kind of a reminder that we, we need to be skeptical about anyone that has, uh, presumes to have real insight into what is about to happen in, in an era that's as volatile as ours.
3: I just think, can, can I hop in here, Brian? Because I think yeah. it's, I think one, it, we do have to be careful about nationalizing these conversations yeah. to me. And, you know, and I think when you start to, that's one of the exciting things about this election. And as you start to drill down, at least on some of these key places, Georgia, Pennsylvania, you see that it took about the the sort of Turning it into a red ripple, uh, as if we're using that phrase, took a couple mm-hmm. of took a both and strategy. It took in places like Georgia and Pennsylvania this massive expansion of the of the electorate to bring yep. in more Democrats, and we saw that right. But it also took. I mean, if I think what Georgia is a really interesting example. If you look at Stacey Abrams versus Raphael Warnock and how they fared, Abrams running for governor and Warnock in the Senate, you know, and you look at at it from county by county, it is very clear. Um, that Warnock managed to convince some Republicans to vote for him, you yeah. know. Um, and you look at, for instance, like Cobb County uh, right outside of Atlanta, um, a, you know, a white, highly educated, um, you know, trendy, you know, sort of swing county. Um, and Abrams won that by four points, but, but Warnock won it by 17. Mm. He got some Republican votes. And, um, in some, and a lot of that is about Herschel Walker was a radical right candidate. um and uh, and but it also it's so it's a both and there is an expansion of the the electorate that is necessary that includes gen Z. i I would love to see how many um young black voters came out in Georgia. I bet it's huge. um and, and it's an expansion of the electorate, but it is also, a, a, a question of in these suburbs whether or not the Republican Party can keep its voters.
4: Well, to that point, Kai, or part of the point you were making, how do you think this election actually went in terms of voting rights? I mean, there's been so much said about states that change their laws right to suppress especially black democrats from easily voting and then about intimidating voters and poll workers to make it even harder but here we are talking about how democrats held their own relative to history and relative to expectations and lots of turnout everywhere that mattered. So how did voting rights fare as far as you could tell?
3: Well, one of the things we know about voting rights and voter suppression is that where it really matters is when there's a low turnout, right? Um, You know, you can overwhelm, and this is what, this is something that Stacey Abrams says, and I think this is something she's right about. This is something that a lot of those folks uh, in in that corner of the politics say, is like, we can overwhelm Uh, voter suppression you know if you have a huge turnout Um, and so I think the Democratic Party aided by the Dobbs decision there is no question in my mind at least Mm -hmm. um, was able to have this massive turnout that makes those sort of um, all of those things that 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 are done to suppress the vote um, have less impact that doesn't mean that they didn't exist but they have less impact when you have a massive turnout.
4: Alexis you want to keep going on that?
5: Sure. I mean, what's really exciting actually is in Michigan, where uh, Proposition 2 enshrined uh, nine days of early voting and a requirement to fund absentee ballot drop boxes to the Constitution, that won with 59% of the vote, in addition to the abortion rights ballot initiative, which won with 56% of the vote, in addition to flipping the Michigan legislature and all three statewide office holders getting reelection. Mm-hmm. I think there's a through line. Voters won supported abortion in places as varied as Kentucky to Vermont to Michigan, and we're waiting for the Montana results to come in, but they look good. And voter suppression, as Kai says, isn't popular. I mean, taking a step to enshrine rights into the Constitution is significant. And it's also worth noting that that same effort failed in New York just two years ago yeah. because of Republican efforts driven and funded by billionaire Ron Lauder, um, which other, you know, again, this is back to the problem with the New York State Democratic Party, which is an absolute shambles. If they can get it together to kind of stick by their own candidates and their own win if in a place like Michigan, is the New York this way?
4: And we continue to have some connectivity problems with Alexis, but I'm going to try to follow up because one of the interesting things you just said is, The New York Democratic Party is in shambles. And you say that even though Hochul won, and it looks like uh, the Democrats will continue to have a super majority, a veto proof majority, or close to it in the state legislature. So why shambles?
5: So the state party is actually run by uh, a chairman, Jay Jacobs, uh, who um, is supposed to be, frankly, uh, out there swinging, beating Republicans, but more often spends his time punching left. It's great that the governor won, but she didn't win by very much, and the fact that the Democratic Party didn't really spend resources communicating to voters the way the Working Families Party did is really telling. I'm a triple prime Democratic voter in Brooklyn, and I did not receive an email, a piece of mail, a phone call, or a text from the Democrats. I was touched multiple times by the Working Families Party. And like I said before, their margin uh, in Hochul's victory actually mirrors nearly what she won by. That's significant. It's great that the Democrats in the Senate also succeeded, but there's been a real rout in Congress. And I'm going to have a piece out a little bit about that. Whereas the red wave failed to materialize outside in the rest of the country, there very much was a wipeout here in New York State. There are a lot of reasons for that, redistricting chief among them, but it's not unrelated to the fact that we don't have a real state party apparatus. And that's in part because Andrew Cuomo was the state party and never bothered to Mm. invest in it or build anything up.
4: Carmen in Broome County, New York. You're on WNYC. Hi, Carmen.
6: Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, Long time listener, first time caller. Um, I've actually been listening to the show for a long time, and in the in that time, I've changed in my views. I've become more conservative. Um, I used to live down in the city. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say that uh, it reminded me of the 2018 midterms, just in the reverse, because there was an expected huge blue wave at that time, and it became like a blue ripple, I think, for the more conservative-minded DeSantis-winning uh, Broward County I believe it was Broward County, Um, Miami-Dade, Palm Beach. I think that's exhilarating. I think he's the future of that Republican side. And I'm I'm just wondering how you think he might parse, you know, how he might differentiate himself from Trump. I mean, hopefully he's able to keep his ego in check. And (laughs) I'm also really interested in what you think about the Latino vote, because I do think that is um, the future.
4: And Charlie, yes. I'll go to you first party. on this in a minute. But Carmen, let me ask you first. What do you yes. think differentiates DeSantis from Trump, if anything, on policy, or is it just about their ego and their style?
6: I think he's more polished. I think he, well, he's a politician. I mean, you know, Trump is many things. I don't think he was a politician. Uh, and I think that was actually something people liked about him. But. Frankly, I think you have to have that political savvy to appeal to both sides, and he He just brings out the crazy in everybody <laughs> <laughs> and um and deSantis you know i he is you know he's he's got some you know um positions that drive people crazy, but he's able to present them in a way that is just more savvy in my point of view. Mm-hmm. And um, I also thought that the Dobbs decision, like, I think, I'm sorry if I get the wrong name, I think it was Alexis who was saying uh, that the New York Democratic Party is in shambles. I I would agree with that, just because uh, had it not been for the Dobbs decision, what happened in the Supreme Court, I think, I don't know how they would have campaigned on things that people would have got out the door to go vote for. I think that, especially with the college vote, the college females, um, I think that was decisive for a lot of Democrat runs that were razor thin.
4: Thank you so much, and thanks for a first-time call. Please call us again. Charlie, you want to weigh in on that, especially um, DeSantis doing well among Latinos and generally in some more Democratic counties, uh, traditionally Democratic counties in Florida?
2: Well, I want to make it clear that I I find Ron DeSantis to be deplorable in many ways, so this is just a descriptive analysis of it. I mean, look, um, uh, today's kind of a a new day for Ron DeSantis because, you know, despite the disappointing uh, national performance by Republicans, you know, he— you know, he 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 whooped up in in Florida. I mean, he just he just crushed it, winning by nearly 20 points. So he is the rising, shining star um, of the Republican Party, which uh, is a real threat to 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 Donald Trump. Um, I mean, when you see him on the cover of The New York Post is the future of the Republican Party. The big question now is, does he have the guts uh, to take on Donald Trump? Uh, there are a lot of people who believe that uh, that he would ha- that he has a glass jaw. Uh, that he, when 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 push comes to shove, uh, he knows what would happen to take on the MAGA base, and most Republicans are terrified of going after that base. And yesterday on election day, Donald Trump's kind of pulling that mafia, you know, maneuver, saying, you know, um, I could tell you things about uh, Ron DeSantis that he wouldn't like, and <laughs> basically, you know, saying I got the shiv here in my pocket, and I'm going, I'm going to yeah. gut you uh, if you run against me. But having said that. Right now, today, and this may fade, um, there is tremendous sentiment on the part of the donor class and elected Republicans that this would be a good time to turn the page. And what Ron DeSantis has done is he's basically turned himself into a Trumpist mini-me, where he is, you know, plays the same culture war cards, uh, you know, cards attacks, hurts the same people um, that the Trump uh, does. So is Trump but without the baggage, a little bit more polished. And so if Ron DeSantis stepped up, and I don't know that he will, and said, it's time to uh, give Donald Trump a gold watch and turn the page, um, that we need someone who can win rather than lose. If you go with me, you get somebody who would serve two terms rather than one term, someone who could actually win in 2024, as opposed to somebody who has lost. I think that that would have real traction. And I think that Donald Trump um instinctively understands that down in Mar-a-Lago, which is why he's been throwing shots at him, calling him Ron DeSanctimonious, because yeah. he understands that, that DeSantis is substantively so close to him that if he basically says, look, you're old, let's move on, let's turn the page, that this might be the moment Republicans w- might do that. But again, remember what we all thought on January 6th, 2021. <laughs> that Republicans would turn the page and they chose not to. So today may be, you know, January 7th, uh, you know,
4: 2.0. Kai, any thoughts on the demographic breakdowns by race? I'm looking at the network exit poll and the AP VoteCast poll results. This is national, so we're nationalizing again. But black voters, uh, about 82 to 86 percent for Democrats, Hispanic and Latino voters, high 50s only for Democrats, um, so around 40 percent, a little over 40 percent for Republicans. Asian Americans, similar, 58, 60 percent. For Democrats, forty percent for Republicans. I think that's lower than in recent elections. Any thoughts?
3: I don't know that there's much to say about it. Um, that's outside of normal. You know, I mean, I think the the, the thing I'll I, I will talk about is the Latino vote piece of it. I don't think we can make any. Uh, assumptions about Latinos anywhere else in the world outside of Florida based on who voted for Ron DeSantis in Florida. The Latino community there is a very different Latino community than in Arizona, which is a very different Latino community than in Nevada, than in California, Mm -hmm. than in New York. Uh, it's, It's a phrase that I think as we mature in our conversation about uh, that community's vote, we will use less and less, I hope. Um, and, you know, and, and I think one of the things that's notable, we did a, a segment on Arizona and Latino voters in Arizona uh, last week and talked to a reporter there uh, who's been following that. I mean, it, and, and one of the things to remember is, I mean, Latino voters, if there is anything to say about them in general, is that they are more independent than, uh, than, than other groups. Um, you know, they tend to be, you know, in the 40 percentiles of independence. And I think that relates to it also being a younger vote, um, so I, I, don't know that there's much to, to say other than, uh, you know, thinking about the demographic breakdown, other than that, you know, people came out to vote of all ages and all races this, mm. this year. And I would say I, I but I do want to follow up on what Charlie was just talking about with DeSantis. And I wonder, I, it's really a question for Charlie for me is like, you know, is, is DeSantis is, is turning the page from Donald Trump, but certainly not Trump is right. You know, and um, and I I do wonder about in this moment, given how stark to me, when you look at the outcomes here, how stark. It is that uh, Trumpism was such baggage for the Republican Party in this election, how that is not, I mean, I guess how I'm asking a dumb rhetorical question, actually, yeah. how that is not yet another opportunity for Republican leadership to say, ah, we've got to find a different way here. Because there's no reason why, I mean, by all accounts, this should have truly been a drubbing. Um, for the Republican Party. And uh, and if it weren't for horrible you candidates, you mean for the Democratic,
4: for the Democratic Party. The right? Democratic
3: Party. But if yeah. it weren't for these candidates in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, I mean, it's just place after place. Uh, it, 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 it's it's just hard to wrap your head around because they're losing Republican mm. voters very Charlie? clearly.
2: This is a very, very sophisticated question, Kai, because because you're 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 right. Um, the 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 threat of DeSantis is the fact that that he is Trumpism, that you, you know, with him, you maybe get a more competent Trumpist and therefore he's he's in many ways as dangerous or more dangerous, although I think that Trump poses a unique existential threat but I, I don't think that republicans are going to see it the the way that you you phrased it which is that it's time to move on from trumpism i think what they'll look at is the candidates who donald trump foisted on them as just being a bunch of, of crackpots and uh, and and flakes and, and and grifters and charlatans and uh, they'll rationalize that and they'll say but if you have somebody who is well-spoken who is ivy league who is more competent um we can go with that we can go with all of the xenophobia—we're not offended by the fact that uh, he, he, you know, transported, um, you know, migrants to, uh, you know, to uh, uh, to Martha's Vineyard. That didn't bother us at all. The cruelty didn't bother us, or the attacks on, you know, you know free speech didn't bother us. What bothers us is the fact that you have uh, the you know, men like uh, Dr. Oz or complete QAnon lunatics like Doug Mastriano. So. I think that, again, this is kind of the dilemma, that the Republican Party um, will stick with Trumpism, even though you could certainly make a case that it is Trumpism itself that has been leading them into the wilderness. But I'm not sure that they're there yet at all.
4: Hmm. We'll continue in a minute. Charlie. Go ahead, go ahead, Alexis. Continue on that. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, what's
5: interesting is that of co- I I, compl- I completely agree with that. I also think, though, the way in which abortion showed up in in states like Kentucky and Michigan amazing. and Vermont yeah. is amazing and an interesting indication because you know the Republican Party has been anti-abortion for decades. This precedes Trump, but the the brutality of of the Dobbs decision and the fallout from that is really telling. And we saw this surge in voter registration, particularly from female voters. And to quote my friend, Alison Turcote, who's a reproductive rights activist in Vermont, everybody loves someone who's had an abortion. That might have been in part the lesson here. And that's not something I think Republicans have shown much of a willingness to walk away from, although they were sort of squishy at points in the election, like Tudor Dixon, who went down in Michigan, basically said, well, there's a ballot initiative you can vote for if you want to support abortion and support me in all other cases. But voters supported the ballot initiative and they rejected her, which is sort of, uh, I think, a strategic lesson that we should actually get abortion on the ballot in more states. It could be a bigger problem for Republicans,
2: actually. Huge. Yeah, that would be a nightmare for them.
4: We'll continue in a minute with Alexis Grinnell, Charlie Sykes, and Kai Wright, and more of your calls. We have a little breaking news about concessions from incumbent members of Congress in our area to pass along, and we continue on WNYC.
5: The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
4: wnyc as we continue our election coverage now with three guests kai wright host of wnyc's notes from america with kai wright heard nationally at 6 p.m eastern on sundays alexis grinnell columnist for The Nation and co-founder of Pithia Public, a political consultant firm, and Charlie Sykes, founder and editor at large and host of a podcast at The Bulwark, a publication largely of anti-Trump conservatives. He's also an MSNBC contributor and author of the book How the Right Lost Its Mind. Two concessions to pass along, Democratic Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney of New York and Democratic Congressman Tom Malinowski of New Jersey, we are told that both have now conceded their races to their Republican challengers. Ellen in Marine Park, you're on WNYC. Hi, Ellen.
6: Yes. Hello. Is that me? Yes. Yes. Hi. Um, so, in line with what you were just saying, <clears throat> is there, <clears throat> excuse me, any
5: chance that the uh, House is Assuming that they, let's say, have a small majority, uh, that their behavior will be any different than it's been, or is everyone going to just revert back, t- you know, to lunacy? And will there be be revenge hearings and uh, you know skewering Fauci and impeachment and all of that? Do you think there'll be any moderation at all, or and and will any of the Democrats, um, I'm sorry, any of the new the
6: new Republicans uh, vote Democrat?
4: in the House. Charlie, let me go to you on this. Let's say there's a slim House Republican majority. Are they going to start impeaching and investigating Joe Biden all over the place?
2: You know, I just did a podcast where we had a, a debate about this. And, and and I think that the the easy answer is, you know, obviously, if they just have a very, very fragile majority, that would be extremely ill-advised to do that, because Kevin McCarthy would be a very weak speaker. But he'd be a very weak speaker because he'll be completely owned by the crazy caucus. So people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tom Massey and uh, Louis Gohmert and and Paul Gosar and folks like that, um, you know, are going to go to him and say, we demand that you impeach Joe Biden. And if you don't uh, impeach Joe Biden, we're going to call a daddy down at Mar-a-Lago and he's going to issue a statement saying that you're a cuck rhino. And what is Kevin McCarthy going to do? If he wants to remain Speaker, he's going to have to do what the extreme caucus demands that he do. So, I don't think that a narrow majority necessarily means that they will be uh, more moderate. The good news is it it may mean that he will have to work with Democrats to get spending bills passed um, or to make sure there's more aid for Ukraine. So there might be some moderation there. But in terms of Hunter Biden investigations and impeachments, uh, I th- I think he's going to be held hostage by the most extreme members of that caucus.
4: I want to come back to one result from Kentucky yesterday that got mentioned briefly a few minutes ago, and that was the abortion referendum. Um, Alexis, two closely watched referendums on abortion in the country. One was in Michigan that was explicitly To enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution, that won. And the one in Kentucky, which was to ban abortion rights in the state constitution, that lost. And Kentucky is a southern state. Obviously, Mitch McConnell's home state. It's a pretty evangelical state, from what I understand, though they do have a Democratic governor. Uh, but how significant do you think this is for the ongoing abortion debate post row at the state level that Kentucky enshrined abortion rights or stopped the constitution of the state from banning it?
5: I think it's huge. It shows that Kansas wasn't a, a one-off. Um, it, it shows that Abortion is an issue that really transcends party. Republicans have dug in on this anti-abortion position, but we see in the polling repeatedly that people support abortion. Actually, the majority of this of this country supports abortion. Now, it's a little more complicated than that. It breaks down sometimes into various uh, caveats uh, that you know show up as certain restrictions, but. The the bottom line is that people want the freedom to choose how they plan their families and what they do with their bodies and their lives. That's significant, and I do think what we're going to see, and you know, we don't have all that data right now, is the surge in enrollment post Dob, state by state, is really meaningful. And like I said before, it's it's actually a strategic argument to put abortion on the ballot in more red states, in more places where Republicans run vehemently against choice, so that you actually pull more voters out on that issue. We see in all the exit polling that right after inflation, abortion was up there. And not, you know, by by two or three points, they were basically neck and neck issues. And so it's been this, you know, Democrats sort of, you know, got this in certain places. And, banged on about abortion appropriately. But in some places, they, you know, we had Bernie Sanders you know, running an op-ed in The Guardian saying that Democrats should focus more on the economy and stop talking about abortion, which is a, a complete nonsense position to take, even though Bernie has a lot of you know, meaningful points to make about how we should talk about the economy and how should we, you should deal with the inflation. Abortion is a winning issue, and women showed
4: up. So about Kentucky in particular, and again, maybe it's a bellwether for other states, Alexis, though they failed the uh, anti-abortion rights people in getting the ban enshrined in the state constitution, I believe that current law in Kentucky has an almost total ban on abortion with the exception only for the life of the mother. So after this vote, do you think there'll be pressure in that state to loosen the abortion laws legislatively now that they're not going to tighten them constitutionally.
5: It's really interesting, Brian, because of course Kentucky is pretty red with the exception of their Democratic governor. But I think there's an argument for then putting affirmative ballot initiatives in front of voters rather than negative ones like the one that ran in Kentucky. And frankly, opportunities to do more work in those places where voters want choices. And they, and you know, Pat Ryan, who won the special election for New York 19 in June, which then got revised to New York 18, where he just ran and won the general, um, he ran a proudly pro abortion campaign in what has, was a plus Biden eight and a half district, which is by definition a swing district. And he talked about it as a freedom issue he talked about it from his perspective as a vet saying i didn't you know go overseas and fight for our rights just to come over here and tell families what to do with their lives oh, okay. i think that's really meaningful messaging and frankly rather than running away from abortion democrats should dig in deeper
4: deborah in jersey city you're on wnyc hi deborah
5: hi ryan thank
0: you for taking my call <clears throat> question i have is i followed a lot of the politics on your station and you seem to educate voters on different issues. But it seems like the Democrats didn't. The Republicans were complaining about inflation, that the president caused this, and the president caused that. But I didn't hear any Democrats saying, well, what is your policy on it? What do
1: you propose?
0: Yeah. And and that bothered me, that really bothered me a lot. And they also, as a senior citizen and an African-American woman, they didn't hit back on Social Security and Medicare, which is a big issue for seniors because I believe that if Congress – you thought January 6th was bad. I believe if Congress <laughs> tries to mess with Social Security <laughs> or Medicare, Boy. you're going to have seniors <laughs> up and off. <laughs>
4: seniors because invading a the Capitol. That's, De- De- that's Debra, what they thank live
1: you, on. So, I didn't hear these things.
4: Thank you very much. Well, Kai, um, you know the Hochul campaign in New York was criticized for this. I think the Democratic congressional campaigns nationally were criticized for this, kind of ceding the inflation ground to the Republicans by trying to run on other things and deflect attention from inflation. When, if you if you really talk to a Democrat who's you know in politics for a living, they'll say. We really believe in our economic policies. We really think they're better for everybody than the Republicans. But as Deborah points out, maybe we weren't hearing it that much.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a little bit of what Alexis was just talking about. We had this sort of meta debate going in the Democratic Party throughout the year about, you know, what is the right thing to try to motivate Democratic voters? Um, I, I I, kind of agree with Alexis that it seemed very clear that abortion was the right thing to motivate Democratic voters. Um, uh, but I think the inflation conversation, it seems to me, was more muddied by the fact, one, by the Democratic Party's just general aversion to aggressive to offensive politics, Um, but also um, by the fact that the White House really has struggled with how it wants to respond to this conversation throughout the year. You know, I mean... They're, they have gone and, and we've all struggled with what it really means in our lives, but the White House has, you know, it at first was like, there's no such thing. And then it was like, yeah. who, who's, uh, whose fault is it? The president can't control it, um, which is true to a certain degree, you know. And so it's just, it was a, it's, a, it's an issue that really, um, uh, that really the, the White House struggled to respond to. And I think you just saw that throughout the party as a result.
4: You want to keep going on that, Charlie?
2: Uh, yeah, no, I, I I agree with that. Um, you know, it is interesting that um, uh, Barack Obama came here to Wisconsin um, in the final weeks of the campaign and really delivered a stem winder about the threats to Social Security and Medicare. And I remember thinking at the time, uh, you know, had uh, Democrats adopted that message somewhat earlier, uh, the results might have been different in the U.S. Senate race here. But you know, going back to the point about the abortion issue, uh, I, I I do think that. Um, It is extraordinary the degree to which uh, Republicans were unprepared to deal with this. They have been pushing for the overturning of Roe versus Wade for 50 years. And when it happened, they they kind of looked around like, what do we do now? And as a result, uh, they took the most extreme possible positions uh, in places like Texas and uh, well, all around the all around the country. And they got locked in. But I, I guess this is a larger point because of the overall political environment and inflation i think republicans convinced themselves that there were no consequences for reckless behavior or taking extreme positions that that you could you know call Nancy Pelosi an animal or that you could take you know you know engage in bizarre conspiracy theories and and, and there would be no consequence because you were going to win because there was going to be this red wave and because the election was going to be about inflation so there was a sort of a sense that, you know, we 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 don't have to come up with um, reasonable ways of dealing with a woman's right to choose. And uh, now that environment has changed. And yet I, I completely agree with Alexis. Um, Republicans have made it very, very clear that they haven't really thought this through. Um, are they going to keep pushing a national ban? Do they think that that's the way out of this? Um, are are they going to continue to push legislation that uh, will have no exceptions for rape or or incest or the life of the mother. Seriously, because until like five minutes ago, that was a fringe position. Yeah. That, you know, these are these are positions that are supported by about eight percent of the electorate, and many of them are locked into that. And so, this is going to be a major issue in twenty twenty four, and it's going to be very difficult for any Republican to finesse it. Because that base is going to demand purity. We've seen this before. That if you're in favor of a six-week uh, ban, you will be challenged in the primary. I'm sorry. If you're, if you're in favor of a 15-week ban, you'll be challenged in the primary by somebody who uh, favors a six-week ban, mm-hmm. and that person will be challenged by the purist, who will say, "Well, there should be no, you know, no abortion at, at all." Mm. And so there's going to be uh, an, in, you know, an internal civil war in the Republicans on this issue, and. As Alexis points out, this is not going away. This is not an issue that has been resolved. In fact, I think it will ramp up between now and 2024.
4: Charlie, as the Wisconsinite yeah. in the room, let me share some breaking news with you. NBC, Politico, and CNN are now projecting that Republican Ron Johnson has won the Wisconsin Senate race yeah. against Mandela Barnes. We do not see the AP calling it yet or the New York Times, but NBC, Politico, and CNN calling Ron Johnson. Mm-hmm. Does that mean Wisconsinites elected a MAGAite for Senate but not for governor?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a split decision. And I, th- I think the, the governor's race was very much a, uh, a referendum on abortion. It was really up or down because we have an 1840 law on the book. Mm. The books, if Republican uh, candidate for governor had been elected, Republicans would have controlled everything and abortion would have been completely banned. Uh, now it's less it is less clear. Uh, Democrats did very well across uh, the board. Um, I was always a little bit skeptical about Mandela Barnes' electability. I think that uh, you and I have talked about this before. I think Ron Johnson was a deeply embarrassing character. I think he was too extreme for Wisconsin. He was very vulnerable. Uh, and I think perhaps this was a lost opportunity for Democrats to pick up that seat and, and secure control of the U.S. Senate. So very, very frustrating and very disappointing.
4: Alexis, there's going to be a stalemate in Congress whatever the final Mm -hmm. numbers are for House seats. It'll be very hard for Biden and congressional Democrats to get anything done outside of executive action, as it was more or less the last two years, because if nothing else, there'll still be the filibuster rule in the Senate. So we're going to have this, this dynamic, which Obama, Trump and Biden have all had. Where with a stalemate in Congress, they try to go as far as they can with executive action on climate, on immigration, on other things. Then they get challenged in court and some things stand and some things don't stand. Is that the next two years of American politics at the policy level?
5: Well, I think we should be actually looking to the states for the next two years Mm. of American politics at the policy level. We have all this focus on Washington, which, as you put it, sort of um, is in a bit of a spiral. But the states are really, as has been said, laboratories of democracy and where we set up for the next presidential cycle. And I keep going back to Michigan and I'm going back to Pennsylvania. But those are major swing states that are now in control by Democrats With clear majorities, and that's really interesting. That means they can do interesting things in those places. Um, And I think Michigan, in particular, is going to be important for 2024. Um, It was a blowout there for Democrats, and it's huge. That's a a state that decides elections. And I think we should be paying attention to the state level because, frankly, that's where Republicans have built power. That's right. It's a mistake Democrats repeatedly make, which is to focus only on Washington without looking in their own backyard, mm-hmm. which is where actual policymaking that affects everyday lives and, really happens.
4: And that has to be the last word for this hour. Alexis Grinnell, columnist for The Nation and co-founder of Pythia Public. Kai Wright, host of WNYC's Notes from America, national show, call in, 6 o'clock Sunday night. Kai, five seconds, who you got this week? Uh,
3: we got callers. We get, it's all about the listeners. What are you thinking after, as a response to this, this election?
4: And Charlie Sykes, founder and editor at Lodge and podcast host at The Bulwark and author of How the Right Lost Its Mind. Thank you all so much for an hour on an extremely busy day.
0: Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.